Hello, my friends. Today we are talking to Klaus, an enterprise architect at Novazymes, and we discuss how you can effectively use enterprise architecture to optimize your organization, how to gain visibility into shadow and rogue IT, and why the ability to communicate pain points is almost as important as solving the problem itself. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. We're closing in on something like 30 years of of actual experience post-college. And I've done sales, I've done solutions, I've done implementations, I've done pre-sales, project management, solution architecture, and, and now enterprise architecture. And I've been fortunate enough, I was actually fortunate enough, I started in sales because I talk a lot, I talk fast, and so people naturally associate that with the sales process. So it was sort of always a given that that was, you know, people would tell me, you need to go into sales. As it turned out, I was actually really bad at it because I talked so much that people didn't have a chance to say yes. So at at one point in my career, I actually got fired as a salesman, but the company said, look, we need a consultant for pre-sales and for implementations and and you know your stuff. So do you want to try your hand at that? And it turned out that I was a much better salesman as soon as I started coming in after the guy who got the customer to say yes, because coming in with, um, let's say, that sort of pre-approval meant that when I talked to new customers, I was selling CRM systems at the time, this was pre-Salesforce. And uh, so when I came in and said, look, I think we need to do this, we need to do some some development on this and some of this stuff, people were like, yeah, you're probably right. Because then they sort of, I, I needed that sort of initial leverage. And uh, so that brought me into consulting, uh, pre-sales implementation, and then from there into solution architecture with a, a the largest pension firm here in Denmark, which is a... Uh, it's difficult construction to explain, but it's semi-public, um, which means that it's partially owned by uh, the government and partially by some organizations. But it's basically everyone who, who lives in Denmark and works in Denmark has a, a, the employer pays a specific fee to this pension fund. So you get it whether you want it or not, right? And so this pension fund is closing in on, what was the last number I saw? I guess the one almost uh, 800 what was it 800 billion Danish I think it was like huge it's like you know so it's it's 100 billion euros or something like that and since they uh, manage monies for for a lot of different funds um there were a lot of different solutions uh, everything from paying out pension funds to paying out insurance to to uh, uh you know not unemployment but de- uh what do you call it? Injuries, workplace injury, uh, things like that. We also have vacation funds here in Denmark. So I get paid during my vacation from a fund, things like that. So we did a lot of those solutions. And where are you at today? Well, now I've moved on uh, from the, I stayed in the financial world for about 10 years. Um, Had a lot of fun. Like I said, a lot of different solutions. And then I, through through a couple of stops on the way, I sort of fell into um, first a chemical company and now uh, Novozymes, which is a biotech company, a uh, global biotech company. And 
you may have heard of Novo Nordisk that does uh, insulin mainly and a lot of other stuff over time. Um, and Novozymes is sort of a, again, long story, but sort of a breakout from that. And we do enzyme development and, and microbiological uh, products. So if, if you take a look at a lot of your uh, detergents or things like that, if you look at those, they will list that they have about 5% enzymes. And there's a very big chance that we made that. That's so cool. Why, why the enzymes? I don't understand enzymes. What do they do? Uh, well, um, at the risk of, of uh, making myself look extremely stupid, um, <laughs> basically what they do is they, they break down a variety of you know the, the stains and, and the dirt and, and uh, the smells that you don't want, for instance, in your clothes in the case of detergents. So by developing those enzymes and adding those to detergent, instead of having... To put it in layman's terms, which is all I know, I've been doing this for two years and I still don't understand half of this whole chemistry thing. But but basically, the enzymes are a biological way to break down, uh, like I mentioned, dirt and, and smells and things like that in clothes um, instead of having like a chemical solution. So instead of having some sort of artificial chemical, we try to use uh, natural uh, ingredients for things like that. Um, we also have, uh, so we have like household care uh, products. We have things like for uh, baking, for instance, enzymes uh, that can be added to flour. Uh, so, uh, you know, bread uh, made at a variety of scales like bakers and also industrial bakeries uh, can have bread created with maybe a bit longer shelf life or, you know, a specific uh, texture to it that enzymes help create. So it, it's a vast variety of things. It's like enzyme 101. I, you say at the risk of sounding stupid, you know so much more than I about them. I've heard of them. I've heard of these things, but I'm curious about what they do. So you would be involved in like a wide array of products from laundry detergents to, you know, bread. I mean, that's food. That's just how big is the company? Uh, the c company is about, uh, what are we, 6,000 people-ish, uh, I think, six to 7,000 people, and we have locations. Uh, since we were fo uh, founded in Denmark, we have, let's see, three or four locations in Denmark with plants and offices and administration and things like that. And then we have a variety of offices and plants across the globe. In the U.S., we have one in Franklinton, and we have one in Brazil, and we have two locations, I believe in China and uh, India. We have both um, IT offices in India um, and we also have a manufacturing plant in Mumbai. Yeah, you guys are huge. <laughs> yeah, I, we're, we're pretty big. We're pretty big. I was talking with uh, Nick. I did an interview with him at BizDesign. Mm -hmm. And after I was talking with him, I was like, all right, I was trying to understand enterprise architecture and how their software and what their offering was. And I was really trying to understand it. And then I, then I thought, all right, just give us like somebody who uses your product <laughs> and we'll talk with them <laughs> too, just to like get more experience with it. Because I just happen to be kind of, I want to grow a large company. I, I would love to have a problem where I have 5,000 employees and I need to like really take enterprise architecture seriously. Um, so I'm just mm. curious, like what, what is enterprise architecture to you? Uh, well, there's a short and a, you know a hugely long answer. Um, but but the short answer is it's optimization, and 
historically there's there's been a lot of problems with with enterprise architecture people have have sort of seen it as well now we have all of this it and we need to get that under control but in my mind it's the it's like the the interface between the line of business and it in order to optimize and solve problems and it just so happens that if you have a company with 6000 employees across the globe one of the main solution drivers will be IT, right? It's it's hard to optimize without IT, but there are ways of doing that. I mean, you can look at a specific process and just consider not doing that, right? You could do it differently. I've been in I've I've been in cases where we did a business case uh, for for the pension fund and and we had the conversation of well if we want to automate this let's we have this process it's slow let's automate it and we did the business case and we figured out it would cost I don't know let's say I'll just say a million dollars doesn't matter um, and then we said well for a million dollars how much time will we save. Well, we'll save you know X amount of hours. Okay, so for a million dollars, we can hire people to perform the same task, and and we could do that for five years. And so the the final agreement was, well, let's do that then. Let's hire people for five years for a million dollars because in five years' time, any IT solution that we build today will most likely be, if not exactly deprecated, it will be nearing the end of its lifespan and will need to be upgraded or sunsetted or, or remade, right? So, so the interesting aspect of that was figuring out, does it make sense to do it smarter or does it make sense to do it differently or not do it at all? And that to me speaks a lot to what enterprise architecture does. I, I spent a lot of time today, for instance, in meetings talking with people who work in our production facility. And like you said, you don't know enzymes, but I think you're a great enterprise architect if you are willing to keep asking questions about, well, why do you do that? How does that make sense? Because as soon as you see a specific process, it doesn't really matter whether it's paying out pensions or, or building cars, or in our case, researching and, and uh, growing enzymes, as it were. If, if you understand the process, you can start to ask questions and have line of business then tell you, yeah, you're right, we could do that better and we could probably do it better in this way. So that's where enterprise architecture really, really shines as a discipline to me anyway. It's like a core competency of a founder, or at least that's how I feel myself because I, I sort of see my role or the things that I'm passionate about. Like I'm really passionate about creating you know, autonomous, scalable systems, right? <laughs> that generate mm. revenue. I like those. <laughs> if you don't <laughs> like autonomous, scalable systems that generate revenue, I don't know. I don't know what you like out there, but, but <laughs> it's it's interesting um, because you get to sort of like take this aspect, this like engineering mindset and aspect, and you get to like live it all day with processes across the board. Is that fairly accurate? Mm. Well, I mean, it's it's very very wide. I mean, enterprise architecture as a discipline is to me it's very very wide. There is there is that part the the you know, we have a process, we believe that process is somehow flawed. Let's figure out what it is. Uh, 
So then, uh, like you said, you were talking to Nick. What what Nick's uh, company, BizDesign, then does is they offer you a way of documenting and analyzing gap analyses and do as is and to be of that process and communicate that to line of business in in a mutual understanding, mutual language. So so there is that part, but there is also just the part of well, we want to optimize something. We want to save 5% on this, or we want to save on fuel. Um, and then they'll sometimes come to IT and say, can you help us? And if there's an enterprise architecture department, they will most likely pick up that part of it for the initial stages and say, you know what, you should probably look in this direction. And then you'd have someone run the actual solution. If it's something you develop internally or have externally developed, you'd have a project manager and a solution architect ensuring that the architecture for that particular solution matches the need. But you also have sort of what we like to call guardrails or guidelines for how to do IT in general. Good example, let's say you have you have your, your new um, global company and you have your 6,000 employees. If, if, if you have employees in six different countries, what are the chances they will all agree on the same production system? Negative. The same, yeah. <laughs> exactly. The same, the same process control system for their machines, the same vendor for fuel, the same, you know, whatever. And, and then you have different regulations for if you do something in China or whatever. So, so, the, so sometimes you want to set up a, like an initial framework for your company saying, look, here are the guidelines for how you want to implement new solutions. Like if you get a good idea in China, feel free to run with that idea, but do it within these guidelines, security-wise, architecturally speaking, uh, process-wise, et cetera, et cetera. Right? So there's a whole documentation of that, of preemptively defining how do we do things IT-wise in a company. That's a very big part of what our enterprise architecture is as well. Right, reference, reference architectures, basically. I've got so many questions, but <laughs> uh, <laughs> sorry if I keep talking. Uh, no, I've got like I I started taking notes real quick. If you hear me typing, because I'm just like, all right, you were you got you got me off on this thought pattern of you know why why is it that people can't agree on these things across countries? And then I was thinking, well, you know, trust is what you know, and trust is like localized. So your ability to create these frameworks allows for uh, like somewhat of a standard on execution but allows the trust to be you know delegated locally to the brands and the the companies that people know on on the ground in those mm. countries that they understand so they can take that local trust and then process it through a framework so that there's some form of consistency within the organization but they also have the freedom it's interesting yeah that's that's a really good way of putting it exactly um cuz cuz what we see is if if you if you talk to enterprise architects who've been working for a number of years by now, uh, there are some phrases that will pop up. Uh, something called the ivory tower. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. Executive team. Right. So, they, they send commands down. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And, and that's what enterprise architecture for a lot of companies turned out to be because, you know, I, the enterprise architect, would sit in my ivory tower and I would just decree use Amazon Web Services or use Microsoft <laughs> Azure. And I wouldn't really just, you know, because reasons, right? But you'll also hear things like shadow IT 
and you'll hear things like rogue IT. And to me, those are really, really interesting concepts because they speak to what you're talking about, right? If if you have an IT department, a centralized IT department, you, that's where, let's say, you... Well, maybe that's where you run your, your main AWS account and you spin up your different environments. It's where you have your server, your data center, uh, things like that. But all of a sudden, you experience that someone in R&D has bought his own software as a service, right? He uses Zoom instead of Teams. He uses Salesforce instead of SAP, what have you. And, and if you're not aware of that, that becomes shadow IT, and a lot of our organizations will suffer from that today and, and more over time because it becomes so much easier for what we these days call the citizen, the, the end user, to just, you know, you just swipe your credit card and you have an IT solution, right? I mean, you can buy stuff that would previously require you to go to the IT service center and say, look, I need a server and I need someone to install it and I need someone to make sure that it doesn't go up in flames in a week. And the IT guy could then say, well, I won't do it for you. Or sure, I will do it for you. It's going to cost you or however you wanted to do that. But these days, there are almost no limitations to what you can do in a browser. So controlling that, or and, and I'm not meaning controlling as in a stranglehold, but being in control of what happens becomes paramount. And that's where the guidelines comes in. So people understand, well, you're welcome to buy your software as a service, but please understand that the, these are going to be the consequences. Like maybe you have a specific set of rules regarding security or data that you can put on it, or maybe you can only pay for it in a certain way, or maybe you can't integrate with internal systems. It's one of the reasons why I don't have the Zoom application, but I'm running this through a browser because we don't install that on our machines, right? It goes against our guidelines. Ooh, Harry will not be happy. I'm gonna send him a little nut. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna get an email. <laughs> him and his little puppy. The last time he brought his dog on the show. That's hilarious. Um, sorry, <laughs> sorry. Off topic. <laughs> I I want to talk about how does this fit in the things that you're talking about with biz design. Like, give me give me some concrete like example of how you use biz design, how it's useful. Well, th there are a multitude of ways that you use uh, a tool like biz design. We have decided, for instance, to start with modeling to a large degree our as-is landscape. Because coming back to like you have shadow IT, now come back to your 6,000 employees in five different countries and realize that you probably don't know what software is out there. So you can buy some software that solves that problem that, that you know, snoops the network, tells what's installed here and there. But now you know what software, you have like a list of a thousand applications, but who uses them? What are they used for? Why do we have them? What purpose do they serve? And that's like one of the first steps that we use BizDesign for. There are many other ways that you can use it. But, but figuring out, okay, so we have these systems. Let's take them all and define a, a set of metadata that we can attach to these systems, like who's the system owner, who's the VP in charge, uh, what's the criticality of that system, does it support a critical process, uh, what type of data does it contain? Like here in Europe, we have the GDPR issue, for instance. Does this so software contain personal information? Sort of gather that throughout the organization. That gives us an understanding of, of what 
uh, what it does. What's the purpose? Why did someone buy this? And sometimes you'll find stuff that someone bought and just didn't use. And then we model that. We start to model that uh, in a variety of different ways. And, and that's where I think a software like BizDesign or, or some of the others in the market are really, really great because they basically do what PowerPoint and Visio does for a lot of people, but in a combined data stored system, which means that if I have, let's say I have all of the metadata for my uh, Salesforce implementation. I know what account it runs on. I know who owns it and things like that. Then I can start to say, well, okay, what capabilities uh, does this help me achieve? And now I can create a capability map. So I can have that separate to my list of systems, but now I can draw relations, right? So now I can say, well, these three systems help me drive these two capabilities, like sales, for instance, would be a capability. That's a good or, or capability. Lead generation. Yeah. That's a great yeah. capability for back to the revenue generation, right? So so now you can can map your systems to your capabilities, but you can also say, well, we have some initiatives in our organization. Uh, we, we want to upgrade our SAP. We want to um, develop a specific application for, for our uh, AWS uh, something something. And so now you can map your systems to those efforts. And because you sort of start building this spider web throughout the database, then once you reach critical mass of this, what I like to call enterprise information, then you can start to mold it and model it semi-automatically in pretty much any way you can imagine. It's sort of like, you know, data analytics, but for modeling, if that makes sense. Yeah. Right. So if if, if I in my system right now, if I want to know, well, I've got these, I've got this particular process. Or, well, I'll give you an example. Actually, we had one uh, model where we talked to our quality management team. And so we said, well, how are your systems connected? And, well, they were connected like this. And so now we have this map that shows all of the systems that are relevant to perform quality management and what information flows back and forth. And so now we can all of a sudden really quickly have an overview say, okay, if we want to upgrade this from, I don't know, from, like I said, let's say we want to swap from AWS to Azure, or we want to swap from an Oracle database to a, a Microsoft SQL database. Well, what are the implications of that? Well, there are these five systems around it, which all receive or transmit information to this database. So are any of them dependent on that particular technological layer that we're trying to change? Well, yes, system A and B are. Okay. So what would it then take to change those. And so you sort of like rings and, and, and like throwing a stone into a pond, you start to see this influences, this influences this. And then you can at the same time, when some people, when you then come to let's see a C-level person like the CFO or, or whomever and say, look, it's going to cost us a million to fix this. He's going to say, well, why do I want to spend a million on that? And we can then tell him because this and this and this is critical this one is end of life from the vendor and they're all what enable you to do sales, right? So we can have a conversation based around what they're specifically achieving in the organization, why they are important to us. All right, so you buy their product. Is it something that they're helping you out in the onboarding experience? Do they give you some online videos and say, here, go do this? Do they act as consultants? Like, what is that like? How are they more than a tool? 
in our case specifically, what we've really benefited from uh, using biz design is, uh, oh, God, there's so many things. Uh, and, and that sounds like a, a you know, uh, like I'm really in love with those guys. But it, there's there's such a thing as, you know, they have consultancy. They have an understanding of like if you run a consultant agency, you could come in and you can ask people, well, what do you do? What do you want to optimize? Where can we help you? You should probably look at this. What what biz design is capable of doing is taking that and then at the same time sort of bringing the tool with them, if that makes sense. So so you sort of buy the tool, but but the tool then becomes the platform where you start to... Uh, build your questions and answers with their assistance. So things like, well, what's important to you as a business? Like I, like I said, what we did was we started modeling our as-is for systems. For another company, it might be, let's say you work in, in finance, you're heavily regulated, then maybe just understanding your business processes and having those documented is your prime concern. Or maybe you're trying to, I don't know, make some digital disruption in your business, right? To, to do digitalization of your entire processes and start selling your data or things like that. So, so what the individual company needs is much, much more important to your starting point of the tool itself. And having that consultancy assistant is, is really, really critical in getting a, a proper implementation of such a tool. So that was one of the things that we've benefited from over the past couple of years is having those conversations about, well, what's important? Where do you want to go? What is it you're trying to achieve? And then just generally having, like I said, uh, let's say I want to model things with ITIL, like we were just talking about. I can call on these uh, experts and say, look, I, I know I have the tool, but what is best practice for doing this? What is best practice for for documenting uh, Amazon Web Services, DevOps roles, uh, ITIL uh, uh, phrases, whatever. And, and we'll have a conversation regarding what is best practice. And so it's, yeah, it's, it's basically having the, the consultancy that's sort of served on a specific platform of a tool. That's what I think is great. That's pretty cool. And you like them, so I'm going to talk to some other people too. I like to, whenever I have these guests on and I like what sold me on them is so silly. I liked their design, like <laughs> their branding. I was like, I like, I like their branding and Nick was yeah. cool. And then I don't know, this is life. You know, you would think before when I was less mature on how business worked, we have to spend time together, you know, like this is life. We have to do life together. So it's really good to surround yourself with awesome people because that's the, uh, for me, that's what makes all the difference. There could be 20 solutions, but I'm going to go with the, the solution that meets all my needs, but also has really, really great people behind it because I'm going to have yeah. to spend time with them, you know? Oh, definitely. Yeah. And I think it's the, the value proposition of that, I because I've considered this before, is I find it interesting that a lot of companies will buy like, a, you know, an ERP solution, uh, SAP or, or Dynamics or what have you. And they'll say, look, it's important that we understand our manufacturing, our you know, purchasing, our sales, our, our transactional information, our master data. We need to understand all that. But what something like an EA tool like BizDesign, what that platform does for you, it allows you to have the same control over your information, right? To me, that's hugely valuable. Like I said before, having knowledge of 
well, what software do we have? What do we use it for? Where do we want to go? If I want to improve manufacturing, what systems support that specifically? If I want to improve sales, what systems and processes are lacking? Where can we improve those? And having a system like that enables you to you know, run through that uh, information at any given time and, and look through it. Same way you would look at, well, I wonder how we can increase our revenue or our um, our bottom line by, you know, 0.03%. Well, you look at your transaction data, you look at your manufacturing costs, right? So you need to analyze your data. And I like to call this information an analysis instead, right? Because it's, it's sort of the information that, you know, it's there, people know it, it's in their heads, but it's not documented. Yeah, and that's what business design does and helps you with. So how many people are in your enterprise architecture organization? We are specifically, let's see, there's my boss and there's three, four, we're seven actually, seven right now. So people will come to you within the org when they, are they already working with you to help? Like, How, how does it work? How do you interface with people in the org? Right now, we mainly interface with people who come to us and say, we have an issue or we have uh, something we want to do. And that could be anything from, like I said, they want to say, look, we want to optimize this process, but in order to do that, we need to understand the process. Can you help us do that? And so we'll help them with that. Or they'll say things like, uh, we found this uh, patent management database or patent management solution. Um, is that a good fit for us? Does that fit within those guidelines that you've set out? And we'll help them with that. What and if they so, don't? Sorry, I'm going to interrupt you a couple of times. But what if they no, don't? No, if they don't what? Sorry. Like, let's say like they, they know to come to you to check out. Let's, let's mm -hmm. run with this patent one, right? They're going to buy this little patent management system. They could just, you know, take their credit card, swipe it with the vendor, install it, enroll and like finish their problem, you know, be done with it. Um, but what what triggers them to be like? I need to go to this these people and talk about it. Like how how did they, how did they learn that they need to do that? Mm. Well, they're still learning. Uh, to be fair, in in our organization, um, but they learned it. I think, and and this goes before my time. So this is more of a theoretical thing than it is specific for Novozymes, where I'm employed right now. But when you had those. When you have those shadow IT, which I mentioned earlier, or you, or you could have rogue IT, which is where, well, we know what the guidelines are. We just don't care. We're going to do it anyway. Um, so, so when you have those things, what happens is, and that's interesting to me, is let's say you, you decide to buy this patent software and you don't ask IT, then something happens. The vendor decides... Um, to stop supporting it or, or raise the pricing or uh, maybe the the service level isn't good enough for you. You need better support, better uptime, things like that. And then you contact IT and IT will tell you, well, it's not mine. I haven't done it. I can't help you. And a f fight most times will ensue, right? Well, you're IT. Yeah, I know I'm IT, but you've, you've literally implemented something that I can't, I don't know it. I can't understand it. All right. If if you take the the AWS versus Azure uh, comparison, I might have five cloud engineers who know everything about Amazon, but none of them know anything about Azure. So if you've built something on Azure in your own free time, or let's say your your coworker has, and he's now left the company, I I can't help you. And and once that happens in a culture enough times, people start to think, well, 
let's just make sure that we're not doing anything. But that's just uh, one example. There's also things like, let's say security is a massive issue. Let, the patent database would be a prime example of that. If you take our patents and store them on a server that we don't know where that is in the world, you know, any of the hotspots in the world or anyone that has a reputation for stealing uh, corporate secrets, then you run a massive risk on behalf of that company. And nobody really wants that risk. And people understand that, all right? I mean, I understand that I don't want to risk my own livelihood by doing something silly to my computers, right? I want to avoid phishing. I want to avoid storing my information where others can get a hold of it. So that's how they, they learn through that. And they learn through just, I was about to say being told, and that sounds like I treat people like small children, but, but you, you set up these guidelines and say, look, whenever you want to buy something, as a rule, you're welcome to it. But please come talk to us first so we can tell you what the consequences are. And that's a great method of involving people who want, because everyone just wants their life to be easier. They want their systems to be faster, their computers to be better. They don't buy stuff to, you know, be mean or to destroy something for someone. When when our uh, secu information security officer, when when he says, look, I don't think it's a good idea to put that in that particular country, then someone can say, well, I really, really want to. And he says, well, then you just have to go get the CEO's approval of putting our patents on an unsecure server that's, you know, has straight access from the internet. And so that conversation of, of consequences, coming back to the um, ivory tower, instead of saying, don't buy anything, just say, well, come to me, tell me what you want, and I'll tell you what the consequences are. Then you can decide. Those are the type of guidelines that I think make a great EA solution. This is so interesting. I'm learning so much about this, this enterprise. <laughs> you know, the first couple, <laughs> first couple of times I heard about enterprise architecture, I was like, yeah, that, that's just probably, you know, how they lay out their servers in an enterprise. It's, it's like their AWS configuration, probably just their architecture. Cause you know, I was scoped to like building software and SaaS solutions. And so when I heard that, I was just like, oh, that's probably what that means. I never really looked into it. And then I started hmm. ex exploring and learning. And I was like, this is much deeper than, than I thought. And actually I'm learning even more now, even after talking with Nick, like your example of how you can store this metadata on these, you know, this list of solutions that you have and connect them back to company of, like objectives or outcomes that you're looking for, that's actually really, that's like business intelligence. That's, it's almost like you're- It is. Yeah, is, does business intelligence fall under, it's like enterprise architecture is huge because I guess you, some security stuff would come under there. You've got business intelligence, you've got like vendor management. There's a lot of things happening that, that this department, what was this department before was its own thing? Like pr when did enterprise architecture come about? I expect you to be a, a, a PhD historian on the topic. <laughs> <laughs> when did it come about? When did people realize it was a need to be its own thing? Oh, actually, I think the first example is, what was his name? Zachman, I think. Wasn't he the first guy who started to write about enterprise architecture? And I think that was like, that was ages ago. I, you could look him up. I think his name was Zachman, C-H-C-A-Z-A-C-H-M-A-N-N, I believe. He had a model, one of the earliest enterprise architecture models. And I think it was like, 
late 80s or 90s or something when he started talking about it because it's really really old but it's 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 an interesting discipline because you have to be or i believe you have to be a jack of all trades a master of none i could not configure any service on the cloud if you had a gun to my head i could not run a, a piece of heavy machinery in a plant. I couldn't drive a truck. I can't do any of those things. But I can understand and I can talk to anyone from an operator of a machine uh, to a chemist, a research developer, a, a business analyst, a, a data scientist, a cloud engineer, a data uh, architect. I can talk to all of those people and tie that information together and say, okay, so here's what I think we should do. You believe this is good. You think this is good. So if we do this and, and match that up, I think we can solve our problem, right? So it's sort of, I was about to say, playing matchmaking of knowledge. That's what you do a lot of the time. But it's, it's also a discipline that's hard to quantify. What's my worth, right? I mean, what is it worth to an organization to have someone like me or, or seven people like me having that skill set, being able to document, well, what's our actual value chain? What's our value proposition in relation to our uh, expenses for um, IT operations? It's hard because it's like, and I, I hope you have an answer for it, but it's like, the, what's the value of the smart friend that talks you out of doing something dumb? It's like, <laughs> exactly. well, you know it's important <laughs> and you need the smart people around you to bounce the ideas off of, but like, how do you put a dollar amount to it? Exactly. And and so when you say that, when did people start, you know, realizing that enterprise architecture was a thing or a necessary thing, they're still very much uh, realizing that in a lot of organizations, uh, I believe. I mean, enterprise architecture, as a case in point, in the vast majority of companies that I've ever seen or been in, enterprise architecture is a, a department within the IT department. And the IT department is under the purview of the CIO, typically. The CIO, in most cases, is underneath the CFO. And the CFO is the first member of the executive or the C-level team, as it were. Right. That's that's how it's been for every, I was about to say, friend I know who's in the business, with a very, very few exceptions. Uh, Maersk, uh, the shipping company, recently changed their organization and put their CIO up at the top with the other C-level uh, people, COO, CFO, et cetera, et cetera, because they now consider IT to be as important, as it were, as those other areas, rather than just a cost center. So when you, or, or if you don't look at enterprise architecture as something that drives value, then it's hard to understand the value. And if it's hard to understand the value, it's hard to, you know, like you say, put a dollar amount on it and to say, that's worth it to us. Let's do that. I can see the idea in that. There are definitely things that I spend money on that I don't do like ROI, you know, there's some things in business you just know that you need it, right? It's like, all right, mm. the business, my team is telling me that this is a problem. We need to solve this solution. We need a solution. You know, somebody really bright uh, told me once, 
I was very product heavy in my upbringing. So building products, very product focused. And then I switched to be more of like founder type. And, uh, and what I learned was that if you get sales, right, if you get that right, then you have money to solve all the problems and improve your product. But if you start like just if my mistake I was making is I was obsessing too much over the product before I had a bunch of customers. And I would like, my, yeah. if you looked at the, the, the structure of my company, it was like, I had, you know, maybe seven people, uh, building product, improving it and like one salesperson. Right. And we ran out of money. <laughs> so, so <laughs> as we ran out of money, <laughs> I said, uh, I had to let people go. Right. And then I said, all right, well, let's, let's hire like seven salespeople <laughs> and have like two people that, that just focus on this. And as we'll grow at the rate of like three sales, three revenue generating roles to one non-revenue generating role. And we'll do it that mm -hmm. way. And wouldn't you know, we're profitable now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But through that path, the thing that's clear to me is that there are problems that come up. So we have money now and now we're like, we need to be better at delivery, right? It's like, all right, well, mm. I can go solve that problem easily because we have profit from the first quarter. We can just go hire somebody. Yeah. And that everyone's kind of saying about there's this problem. We're picking up on it. All right, let's just go hire somebody that and it's maybe half a role and let's figure out what we can give them to make it a full role. And but I didn't do an ROI study on that. Like I know I probably could have, right? I probably could have figured out, you know, customer happiness and NPS score and put a dollar amount to it. But I mean I just feel like here's here's an interesting thing imagine you are um you know a couple of years ago you're a blockbuster you have plenty of money right now someone is disrupting your business and what happened i think what's interesting about that is you, you probably know this right but netflix came up and started doing stuff and they actually went to blockbuster and i believe tried to sell netflix for 50 million if i remember correctly and blockbuster said no and everyone seems to highlight the fact that Blockbuster said no. What I like to know is why the hell was Netflix trying to sell, right? Someone in that, I mean, someone there had to take a leap of faith that what they were doing would generate sales, right? Tesla, someone has to believe they will make money. Amazon, someone has to believe they will eventually make money because there's, I mean, it, but you're getting your income or as it were, you're getting your in, you know, money in from investments, but it's still a leap of faith. You're actually doing the opposite of what you're talking about. You're, you're developing a product and crossing your fingers that you'll stay alive long enough to see it generate revenue. And sometimes you have to do that. Sometimes that's the best thing you can do. Uh, wasn't it uh, Ray Bradbury said, sometimes you just got to jump out a window and grow wings on the way down. And, and you have to do that in business sometimes. And sometimes having an enterprise architect or a solution architect or some sort of arch cloud architect can help you do that in the best possible way. Yeah, it's like, how do we jump out of the window while at the same time reducing the probability of failure? <laughs> yeah. Preferably to a very, very, very low number. <laughs> <laughs> a, a negative number, please. <laughs> you know, somebody asked me the other day, um, I was at an event. Can you believe that? We had an e there was an event. And, a uh, physical event? It was a physical in-person. It was an event. I saw other humans. <laughs> I came out of my cave. 
<laughs> I saw other humans. It was great. But somebody asked me, they said, do you think it's possible anymore to even make a company or build a product without investment? And I was like, yes. And they were like, I, they didn't, they kind of disagreed with me. They're like, I think you have to have investment. And I was trying to probe a little bit deeper to figure out what their context was, because I'm sure you've done plenty of speaking. Everyone who raises their hand or has a question, like you got to kind of <laughs> dig down a little bit to their context. Um, but there is definitely this 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 feel that you have to go raise money. And one of the things that I've learned myself is about market pressure, right? So if you mm -hmm. find a place where there's enough pressure, if you find a pain point that's big enough, you will get paid to solve it before you even have the product. Like if you yeah. have if you have believability in the area and subject matter expertise, like you can go around and interview people and figure out what they're looking for, what their problems are, find a common thread, identify the market, find something that they're willing to pay you for. And then you can do pre-sales and then develop the product. And I know this because I did this and I did mm. it after I read somebody telling me about it. And I was like, well, I've made a bunch of things and I either got investors or I, you know, did all of this and then tried to sell it. Let me go try this inverse thing. You, you think about the inverse case in point, you're thinking about Blockbuster and Netflix, right? You thought of the inverse of the, so I was like, you know, what's the inverse to this? And let's go try to, uh, sell it before we have the product and that ended up working because mm. yeah. it was painful it was painful enough but if it's not painful enough yeah. it doesn't work i don't know i'm sorry i like product development you got me excited talking about <laughs> it <laughs> uh, yeah but and you're absolutely right and and i think that's uh, probably the, the 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 takeaway from that is like you said well you know get sales right yeah but how do you do that? And and if there isn't, sometimes, sometimes if you find the pain, good. But sometimes you also have to communicate the pain. And I think that's an interesting prospect, right? You have to tell someone it, you are in pain, right? Instead of just going and asking them, what's your problem? Saying, this is your problem. This is what needs fixing. Sometimes you have to take a step back and even teach the people how to communicate. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, that's Hard a whole. <laughs> how do you teach people how to? I'm still working on it, man. I've given up on the, the, it being something you complete. It is a life's work. You always have I think, to work at it. I was, I still enjoy that. I took a, a foundation uh, certification in ITIL. What's this? Uh, right, uh, ITIL, uh, Information Technology Information Library, or something. I forget what it is. It's a standard way of communicating. It's it's a library of phrases and scenes and roles. And someone's probably going to listen to this and tell me I'm an idiot. But to me, it's basically when you say problem, this is what you mean. You put a problem manager to manage a problem. You put a situation manager to manage a situation. And when you look at it, it's almost degrading how simple it is but it's necessary i'm looking it up right now as you're talking yes it, i mean but if 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 you and i are talking i'm saying look we have a problem and you say no we don't have a problem it was a it was a you know it was a unique event it wasn't a problem the thing just, i just rebooted the server because it's monday that's not a problem and i'm like well that is a problem so you know if we can't even agree on what is a problem how are we going to communicate and and you can do that for pretty much any phrase. I had a colleague, I, I worked briefly for the Danish uh, 
uh, customs uh, agency um, building a huge solution there. I didn't get to finish it because it was too massive um, and I got a different job. But we had a guy there who was our data architect. He was basically, and, and basically all he did was define phrases. What do we mean when we say building taxonomies and things like that? And it's just, it, when again, when, when you get to a certain size, if you say product, what do you mean? Do you mean what we develop? Do you mean what we sell? Do you mean it prepackaged or post-packaging? Do you mean delivered product? Right? What what is the product? And, and if we talk, and I'm trying to help you optimize that as part of my architectural work, or you're trying to explain to me why our products have problems. Then if, if I don't understand that you're talking about a physical product in a big bag and I think you're talking about, uh, you know, a conceptual product in a database, we're not going to have a, a proper conversation and we're not going to be able to help each other. This is fascinating. So this is like a framework that will go across companies. I looked it up. It's the Information Technology yeah. Infrastructure Library. So if I learn this, library. if I learn this language right? Then uh -huh. I can communicate with anyone else who has this accreditation and we're instantly on the same page. Correct. Ooh, that sounds like a badge I want for my LinkedIn profile, right? <laughs> it's, and it, it's cool. And especially in an organization, like let's say you have a large organization and you have an incident, right? With anything, you know, maybe you had a physical break-in, maybe you had a server that went down. Then you can all say, okay, look, here's our process according to ITIL. Who are we going to sit down and talk with? What's our con business continuity processes? Uh, who has that role? Let's get that guy in this meeting room. Let's figure out what went wrong. Let's do a post-mortem, things like that. And you have all of that. And like you said, you can take that to any company that uses that. That's fascinating. I'm learning so much. You're a smart guy. <laughs> I tried no, to do that. No, no, no. <laughs> You're a persistent guy. Right? I, that's what I am. Yeah, I'm not very smart, but I'm one of those people, man. I do not give up. I just keep waking up every day and going after it. And uh, and it, it works. It only takes a lifetime, Klaus. <laughs> it only takes yeah. a lifetime to achieve something that is uh, that you're that you're proud of. So. I got a weird question for you. Over the, so over the weekend, over the weekend, I like to think of, you know, just interesting things to talk about or ideas that just flow, right? And so I have a I have a hypothetical fun question for you. Is that cool? Yep, go for it. Okay, let's imagine that right now I snap my fingers, and then you just wake up, and the entire life you just lived to the moment up until this past moment was a game. So you just found out that you were in this really long game, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm sitting there next to you and I happen to be the creator of this game. And I ask you for some feedback on it. What would your thoughts be? The tutorial is too damn long. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I mean, uh, no, I don't know. I think, well, it's it's an interesting analogy because I game a lot, as you can probably see in the background as well. Those are all board games, um, but I'm almost certain I would say that. Well, I think I think you nailed the game, but if everyone else is an NPC, you really need to work on the AI. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> I love it. My random generation's too high. <laughs> Getting some weird stuff out there. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, it's not that people are necessarily stupid or or evil, but as as a species, we're just we. I I don't think we're designed to last forever. You know, uh, we have a self destructive tendency. So I would say fix that. If those were, I mean, and if they are other players, then you know, there's nothing left to fix. <laughs> That's interesting. It's even more interesting that I thought you were really smart because those were really thick books behind you on your bookshelf. <laughs> they're not really <laughs> thick books. They're board games. I want to hang out with you more now. <laughs> they're they're board games. Pretty much all of them, uh, with a couple of exceptions. Yeah. Yeah. That uh, is so cool. So. I've never seen that, by the way. I see every I get to see everyone's background, right? Everyone always has books, the shelves and everything, but you've got board games. I think that says a lot about you. You're a fun, fun person. I think, you know, I try to have fun every day and I try to communicate in, in a direct way, similar to what the conversation that we've been having. Right. I mean, I, I honestly believe that if we can speak directly and freely to each other, when we're, I like to say that if, if, if I can tell you uh, everything, when we're friends, it makes it a lot easier for me to tell you the truth when we disagree. Yes. Right. If, if if we can have fun and be direct, and I can call you, you know, stupid when you do stupid stuff, or a jerk when when we're just goofing around, but then when you actually do something stupid, I can look at you directly and say, "Look, that will not work," and and that cuts through a whole lot of. Well, I have to be careful how I phrase this with that person over there, and so that's I do that in and almost all my interactions. I try to be as as uh, direct as I can, because it just, it simplifies things. It probably means I won't have a ma major career ahead of me in top management, but I'm, I'd rather have fun. <laughs> I, d I, I disagree, actually. I think it's contributed to your success. I think it's part of the reason why you're at where, where you are. Oh, and thank you. Because I've lived both ways. I've walked on eggshells and the, it's too frustrating. It's too much work. And if you're able to be direct and you can care about somebody and be direct with them, that's the that's the the hardest thing to do, right? It's not the easiest thing. The easiest thing to do is to dismiss it or let it go or not address it because it might hurt them or because it's painful. The hardest thing to do is genuinely care about somebody and pull them aside and 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 help help them understand like what your perspective is because man, that's that's it's it's uh it's tough, but it's the right thing to do. Mm. Yeah, I think you're right. People did it with me, you know. That's yeah. people being direct with me allowed me to shave time off of my, you know, experience, uh, and and I'm very grateful for it. And so, man, I love this conversation. We covered so much from gaming <laughs> and the creation of life <laughs> to enterprise architecture. Yep, it was good. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.